I think it is absolutely scandalous, you know, the statistics that came out showing that a, a significant proportion of women are spending more on childcare month by month than they're spending on their mortgage. And that is the other big problem, you know, how property, whether you're renting or looking to buy, is just completely out of whack with the with the salaries that, that, that people can earn. So it's becoming very, very expensive to just exist. Hello, I'm Emile Bellet, founder of Vespod and author of You're Not Broke, You're Pre Rich. And you're listening to The Wallet. To kickstart the second season, after over 75,000 downloads, I'm so happy and honored to interview my friend Claire Barrett. Claire is the Financial Times consumer editor, presenter of the FT's Money Clinic podcast, and a leading voice in demystifying money matters. She's passionate about making financial literacy both accessible and engaging for her followers. Claire also frequently appears as a commentator on radio and TV and as a regular guest on Eddie Mayer's drive show on LBC Radio. So today on The Wallet, we take a look at some of the most pressing financial challenges women are facing post-pandemic. Claire gives her top tips for organizing your finances and budgeting and shares her experience being the main breadwinner in her family. We discuss the importance of financial literacy, how Claire has made personal finance accessible to her readers throughout her career, and how her own approach to money management has evolved. Claire shares her long and short-term financial goals, how she plans for the future, and how to gain confidence in investing in the stock market. I'd also just like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, Pensionbee. Pensionbee has helped over 500,000 customers be pension confident. It enables savers to take control of their finances by helping them transfer their old pensions together into one simple online plan. With Pensionbee, you can manage your pension like you manage your bank account, you can check your real-time balance, see your projected retirement income, and set up contributions and withdrawals all from the palm of your hand. Plus, you'll get human support from your very own UK-based account manager or as PensionB calls them, Beekeeper. You can sign up to PensionB today with the names of your old pension providers in just five minutes. And if you're self-employed, you can start a new pension from scratch. As always with investments, your capital is at risk. And you should check the show notes because PensionB is offering you a deal on opening a new pension with them. Hi, Claire. Hi, Emily. I'm so psyched to be on your podcast. It's so nice to see you. <laughs> yeah, we haven't seen each other for ages. Last time, maybe at the FT offices a while ago. I know. Um, I'm really encouraged that things seem to be coming more to life now. I went to my first kind of like proper networking event last night. I'd say I'm, I'm, my, my voice might sound a few few degrees lower <laughs> than it normally does <laughs> on account of staying out too late and drinking wine but if everyone was just going isn't this amazing um, whereas I think before lockdown I was quite possibly suffering from networking fatigue but but yes it's definitely great to be back in the city back in the office seeing colleagues seeing contacts seeing you yeah and, and recording your your podcast also in your nice uh, studio yeah now that really does make a difference because I mean we launched Money Clinic under lockdown and all of the recordings up until about the last month or so have been done in a little studio that I basically built under my stairs um, in the middle of my flat and it's it's okay there's no natural light whatsoever but I, I work in there and I record everything in there and it kind of incentivizes me to to get finished you know because then I can see the sunshine again but there are limitations to making podcasts at home as I'm sure you know and I live in a big block of flats and there's always somebody who's doing DIY and we can never do recordings between sort of three and four o'clock because that's when all the kids come home from school and you can hear all my neighbours doors banging so so yeah so being back in a nice quiet air-conditioned studio environment where everything works is is really great and hopefully that that shows in the in the recordings we've been making. So, so can you tell me, and, and for those who don't know you, a little bit more about your day and, and what you do? Well, I've always naturally been interested in money. Um, my parents were very good with money, and there was a simple reason for that was that we didn't we didn't bloody have any <laughs> when I was growing up. So, like budgeting 
was a way of life. Making the most of the little you had was a lesson that was, you know, really drummed into me. I mean, I didn't go to university straight from school. I got a job and I worked for two years and saved up money so that I would have money to 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 get me through studying because I wanted to move to London and I knew that that was going to be more expensive. And I guess that ending up in journalism, I didn't really seriously consider journalism as a career until I went to university and got on the university newspaper and absolutely loved it. But I still didn't think that I would necessarily be good enough to be a journalist because, you know, there's lots of competition, lots of very clever people have been to much better universities than and schools than, than than I did. But, you know, once you've got the bug, you, you, you just want to do it. So I started writing about property um, and then eventually got onto the Investors Chronicle and then the Financial Times. And when they offered me the job of personal finance editor, I'd done a lot of other jobs for about 10 years up until this point. And I was just so delighted because it was the topic that I was the most into. But also, it's an area where you can get really involved with the FT's readership on an up close and personal level. And we're now doing events again, which is fantastic. Obviously, the podcast where we actually have a, an FT reader who every week tells me about a particular issue that they're having with, with money. Then we get some expert voices saying, well, if this was you, what kind of choices could be could be open to you? It's just a way of like making money, A, more accessible and B, less boring because nobody wants to spend their whole life, you know, combing through their finances, you know, the sort of hair shirt approach. People come up to me in the FT office all the time and say things like, oh, well, I want to do this, but I can't find the right, a simple answer to this question on, on the internet. I can find like 30 articles, but I can't find one that just explains it in a sentence. And I do a lot of explaining things in a sentence, um, you know, for colleagues, for friends, for my family, my stepchildren, their partners, my ever-growing band of younger relatives. My brother's got three children. So, you know, the, the whole gamut of personal finance stuff from, you know, junior ISAs, children's savings accounts, all the way through to pensions, inheritance tax and, and wills. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of scope to simplify people's financial lives in an easy to understand way. I mean, for me, when I look at, you know, read the FT, think about the financial times, my year in banking, you think that the mm. FT audience would tend to be male, maybe a bit older, very financially savvy. So what's the Claire Barrett secret sauce? How do you keep your audience engaged and how do you teach? Because your advice is like super practical, you know, very, very good tips, explaining all these financial products. Uh, we talked about, you know, budgeting. How do you keep your audience engaged on all these topics? Well, firstly, on, 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 the, on the male point, it's true that the FT has got more male readers than female for now. <laughs> um, but you know, the number of female readers is, is growing. But then when it comes to the podcast audience, they're much younger and they are much more likely to be female. And of course, the podcast is free. It's not, um, you don't have to pay to subscribe to the FT to listen to Money Clinic or any of our podcasts. Anybody can, can listen to them. Hence, younger people are able to engage with us. With my column, I tend to aim it slightly at higher earning people who probably have jobs in finance just because we know that if you're buying the paper you tend to fit a slightly a slightly different demographic but in terms of how I stay engaged with the audience social media is a massive massive part of, of that um, I'm very active on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn my handle's at Claire B C-L-A-E-R-B but I'm easy to find <laughs> and if you engage with me on any of those platforms it might take me a while to respond to you but I will see your messages and it is of course how we find different podcast guests and then you know I'm one of life's talkers if I'm ever at a party or a family gathering I mean people normally come up to me and want to talk about money but it's partly because they know I love talking about it and I, I just can't help myself and, I'm, and you know especially like new scams that are, are coming up you know I was at a work do last night and my boss um, nearly fell for a really sophisticated scam attempt. I'm probably going to write about in in a couple of weeks. But you know, it's just like all of these people can contribute to my knowledge of, of, of all aspects of the financial world, and then I take what I 
think of the most helpful, the most practical ideas and make them either into into podcasts, into into columns, um, into pieces on LBC radio. So I do that about three times a week or, you know, or, or just post them, post them on Instagram. Because I think, you know, knowledge is power and we need to share the knowledge. Have, have you seen the, the world of personal finance change over over the years? What are the, the new things you see? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, I mean, let's talk a little bit about about the pandemic. I mean, I do think it's been, you know, a, a story of two halves because you have had, and I am lucky enough to fall into this category, a large group of people who have saved money because they've been working from home. They have not had the ability to spend money on expensive luxuries like foreign holidays, going out to restaurants, all kinds of things. And they have suddenly thought, my goodness, there's rather a lot of money in my bank account. And we know that lots of people have turned to investing for the first time under lockdown because they've got what you need to invest, namely spare money. Now, I've always advocated before, if you budget carefully, like, you know, don't knock out everything because, like, my goodness, you know, I love spending money on Emma Bridgewater mugs in particular. I'm 91 now. <laughs> That's grown under lockdown. Um, you know, allow yourself to to spend money on, you know, things and experiences that, that are meaningful to you. You don't waste money. But if you can generate a surplus and invest it, then that really is the, the secret sauce to, to any kind of money success story. So under lockdown, more people have realised, I think, they've questioned, you know, why am I spending so much on this? And they've also had the time to go through different financial things. They've been at home, you know, the paperwork is is there. You know, everyone's got a drawer, haven't they, where they sort of like shove everything. You know, we've, <laughs> we've all been sort of going through the drawer under lockdown and thinking, oh, okay, so the company pension scheme, never really looked at this properly before, but actually I could be making a bit more money from this if I'm smarter about, about these choices. But then, of course, you've had the other side of the coin, which is the people for whom lockdown has been financially challenging, um, in some cases catastrophic. I've done a lot of work on LBC about Forgotten Limited, you know, limited company directors who were just excluded from all forms of um, the government's um, support programmes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And lots of people, you know, think that they're just tax dodgers. Um, and I've explained like so many times, you know, this is a standard accounting measure. You know, there's about a million people in the UK who have sold, sold directors of, of, of limited companies. And it's been a really challenging year. But I mean, apart from that, you know, we've had more than 10 million people have been furloughed and they've had to get by on 80% of their pay. Um, and then you've had people who have either lost jobs, been made redundant, huge problems for the gig economy. Um, you know, people who have welcomed the flexibility of gig economy work when times were good, but have then found out to their cost when times are bad that they can just be let go, not be entitled to, to sick pay. And then, of course, all of the people who have tried to claim universal credit, thinking I've been a taxpayer for, you know, donkey's years, this is the time when after paying into the system for so long, I need the system to support me through a difficult period and then found out that they weren't eligible for a penny because they or their partner um, had savings um, of, of more than, than a set level. And I think it has really shocked people to find out how many holes there are um, in these financial safety nets that we kind of might have thought would be there um, to, to support us. And that in turn, as people get back on their feet again, you know, pay down debt, you know, think about the future, you know, please God, we are coming out of the worst stages of, of, of this pandemic, but, you know, there could be another one. And, you know, it's caused people to completely reassess their um, their financial position. But I think in the majority of cases, for the better, you know, thinking about building up a savings buffer, thinking about investing, thinking about all of those things in the drawer, like the company pension scheme that they could perhaps make a bit better useful. And this is, I mean, we've realized that it's it's such a big responsibility because most of these people, I mean, most of us, we we don't even have a financial advisor. And I know, you know, in the Vespot audience, most women won't have an advisor. No. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's it's a big thing for the, to ask anyone to think about their finances, like company pension, there's a little bit of hand-holding, so you're saving automatically through, you know, auto-enrollment, maybe it's not enough, maybe you should 
think about that. But, you know, if you have debt, even like, you know, drawing your first budget and stuff, it takes a lot. And, you know, where, where do you find the, the knowledge to do these things? I think it can be very overwhelming for a lot of people because salaries are not great. We're at a time when inflation is rising, the cost of living is is getting higher. I think it would be much harder for people to get pay rises in the next couple of years because of the extra charges on national insurance that employers are going to have to pay. But just the kind of environment in general, you know, companies are recovering from the pandemic, you know, they're looking to be lean with their costs. But one thing that I think can really help people to feel less overwhelmed is the sense of community that, you know, you've been able to build successfully with Vestpod. And, you know, I've got people on social media who are following me and they're not following any other finance people. Um, and they say, you're not like a finance journalist because you talk about money in a language I can understand. And I like do myself a high five <laughs> whenever I get comments like that, because I just think, yes, you know, this is the whole point. Like, I'll let you into a secret, but I pitched an article to Good Housekeeping um, a little while ago because I read Good Housekeeping. I'm only 44, but like, I love it. I love the recipes. Um, food is my downfall. Um, and I said, oh, I love your magazine. Please let me write an article for you called If You Can Cook, You Can Invest. <laughs> love it. <laughs> because I just thought, when you see financial articles in women's magazines, and don't get me wrong, it's great that there are, because there never used to be. But when you see them, I often think, will women who you know, enjoy the other aspects of this magazine just flick past the investing pages because they've got you know, numbers and calculators and you know, pictures of people going through paperwork? Is that off-putting to women especially? If we made it look more like a recipe, and used all of these analogies of, you know, choosing your pot, you know, because it's important. What are you going to put your investments in, a pension or, or, or an ISA? What are, the, what are the advantages? And then looking at the ingredients and, you know, I've compared, you know, like robo funds where you can get started quickly and somebody else makes the choices for you to like a, a, a Gusto or a HelloFresh um, meal kit. You know, you are paying over the odds um, for the ingredients, but it's very convenient. Um, and, you know, you can order it online and you know get started within within minutes or at the other end of the scale you could do the full-on otolenghi um, and select all of your in you know ingredients foreign shares you know from an investment platform and and frankly you know you could start on one end of the scale and then build up to um something a bit more a bit more complicated so i think the, the piece of advice that i give to um colleagues especially where they say like i don't know where to start i don't know where to start it's like you know just get started with something you know even if you are doing you know a robo advisor or you're doing an online will for a hundred pounds just so you've got something in place um you know or taking out an insurance policy that will cover you in the event that the worst can happen even though you know if you researched it you could probably save a bit of money and get a bit more cover it's just like well, at some point you have to say make a decision do something you know get that money invested get your get your plan in place you can always come back to it later and make it you know and, and, and optimize it if you like but just to get cracking with some of these things and tick them off the list for a lot of people, it's just a real achievement of having done something. And I think one of the, so we talked about, you know, this responsibility for all of us to get started on our finances. And you're right, like start with something, maybe it's investing, repaying your debt, you know, budgeting. But also one trend that I've seen recently is, and, and, and I think that's affecting our financial habits, is the rise of the new credit methods, mm. such as buy now, pay later. And to be honest, I've seen ads in all these women's magazines. I've seen, you know, ads in like the big financial conferences. They are literally everywhere. And the other day I was purchasing like a new basket for home, from home or something like that. My only option was to actually pay in four times. And then I had to click another, you know, somewhere else to say, no, actually, I want to pay for my item now. <laughs> you know, I've budgeted for this. I want to buy it and then leave me alone. So do you think this type of products, I, I understand they're really helpful. If you need something, you can't afford it. It's like an emergency. But what about people who can actually afford these things and that are maybe going to buy more using this type of, of products online? I mean, of course, people are going to buy more. I mean, psychologically, when you look at the 
little thing on the website that says like you know pay in three you know this could only cost you 12 pounds a week um and, and you think oh that's nothing zero you know, interest could... yeah yeah ex- ex- exactly and i think that for the online shopping generation and certainly that has been one of the trends that has you know just gone bonkers um under lockdown i mean there are no shops in hackney now officially where you can buy anything useful anymore you know the internet has driven them all out of business so if you want to get anything like for your house or you know a roll of wallpaper or you know a screw you know these are the things that you just can't buy in central london locations anymore you know it's basically amazon or or screw fix direct and 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 that's it i digress but we're buying so much more stuff online what is useful for people is saying okay well i'm going to order a size 10 and a size 12 and maybe a size 8 and one of them will fit me and I'll return the other two. I won't have to pay for them, you know, because I've clamored it or laid it or whatever. And I'll only just pay for the one and the refund will go through before I'll have to stump up the cash. And I know from talking to Resolver, the complaints people, that the biggest volume of complaints that they get about buy now, pay later when people have returned goods like that to a retailer, but because they're getting masses of orders and masses of returns that are just like piling up inside warehouses, they're not processing those refunds. So all of a sudden, even though you've returned two things and you've only bought one, you're still having to make the first payment for all three. And as with many digital companies, if you want to actually get hold of a human being, you have to be very persistent you know, I mean, I tried to get hold of somebody at Apple the other day because I've been overcharged for a subscription that I had actually cancelled, or I believed I'd cancelled it. And it was like, it was 50 quid. So I thought, well, you know, this is worth hanging on the phone for 10 minutes, frankly. You know, and you will get through to somebody, but it takes ages. And it's like, they, you know, it's like designed like a trap on the website. You're trying to find like, you know, you get, or you get the robot on the phone saying, what would you like to do today? And I'm like, speak to a human. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're saying. Please, because our website, um, and you think, no, that's not what I want. And so it is really hard. And I think these buy now, pay later companies, new payments companies, digital banks as well, to an extent, there's lots of problems with account freezing under lockdown. They really need to prove to customers that they can offer top-notch customer service and human beings when things go wrong. Because I think that really is what's missing at the moment. I'm glad that the financial regulator is going to step in and, and, and regulate them. I do think that there are worries about pushing credit onto groups who can't afford it and who will not be credit checked properly. And all I would say to the buy now, pay later companies is look at what happened to the payday lenders. You know, all of these retrospective claims saying I couldn't afford it, putting the likes of Wonga out of business, scandalous that People who were told that they could get their money back never did get their money back because the companies just went bust. But, you know, are we going to see a similar thing happen happen with buy now, pay later? Well, you know, that's one thing I'll be looking to write about in, in the FT in the coming months and years. And ap- apart from that, what are the most pressing challenges you see today, especially for women? I mean, in, in a post-pandemic world with extremely high cost of, you know, Childcare, if you have children, mm. with you know lower income, pension gap, gender gap, racial gaps. I mean, where where do we even start from there? Well, let's start with childcare because that is something that I think is within the government's gift to sort out. I think it is absolutely scandalous. You know, the statistics that came out showing that a, a significant proportion of women are spending more on childcare month by month than they're spending on their mortgage. And that is the other big problem, you know, how property, whether you're renting or looking to buy, is just completely out of whack with the with the salaries that that, that people can earn. So it's becoming very, very expensive to just exist and, you know, pay your rent or pay your mortgage. But if you've then got children on top of that, and how you manage financially without support from parents, um, frankly, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that there'll be lots of people who are listening to the wallet who maybe employ a nanny as a way of doing their childcare, which isn't something just for the, the rich and highly privileged. It actually works out quite well, especially if you are doing a nanny share arrangement with another family. And there's lots of my colleagues at the FT 
who are doing that. But because you're employing a nanny, you've got to pay their tax. You've got to pay uh, employers national insurance um, on their contributions. You've got to set up a pension for them. And you can't do this in a tax efficient way by you know setting up a, a, a company, you know anything like that. So you're effectively being double taxed. You know, you're, you're paying tax and national insurance on your own income, and then you're having to pay it um, on on the nanny's income as well. And people might think, oh, you know, well if you're earning enough to afford a, a, a nanny, then you know you can afford to take take this hit. But you know there are real, you know, a lot of people who I who I know who are in that situation, you know, they've got big debts as a result of this. They have got big overdrafts. The charges on overdrafts obviously shot up a year ago. You know, if they have an emergency, you know, the boiler goes wrong or something like that, then they have to resort to to credit. And like on the outside, they might look like they're doing quite well, you know, two earners, couple of kids, um, you know, living in London, maybe one of them's got a job in the city. But if you actually look at their finances, there is very, very little slack in the system, and it is a real struggle. What the government has done with things like tax-free childcare, they've created a system that works well on paper, but then in practice, um, you know, like finding a, a private nursery <laughs> that can give you those free hours, I mean, Good luck, my friend. Um, it's like they don't road test these things. They don't listen to, to women. And unfortunately, it is the administrative burden for, for all of these things, whether it's childcare or caring for elderly parents or um, any form of caring, seems to fall more heavily on our shoulders than it does on, on, on anyone else's. And I think that is a particular problem for, for women's careers, You know, whether they will accept that promotion, whether they will even apply for it in the first place or just think, you know, this is just something I can't afford to take on. And looking at other countries, you know, Sweden, Germany, Holland, they've all managed to come up with systems which seem to be much more equitable and also involve both parents yeah, and not just kind of push all of the burden onto the woman. So I definitely think that politicians could, could do better and maybe, you know, Boris, another baby on the way, maybe Carrie will, you know, have a word in his shell like let's hope so <laughs> on your stat is actually uh, one third of uh, parents said that their childcare was more expensive than their mortgage and i think for you know black women it's like 47 percent, which you know Gosh. is uh, is crazy horrible horrible but there, there's been a few like influencers working on these campaigns also so hopefully i mean we, we we're monitoring this and um and help if we can, but hopefully we're going to see some changes very soon, I hope. I hope so too. Claire, what are your 2021-2022 personal finance goals? What are the things you want to achieve and, and how are you going to planning to achieve these things? Well, anyone who follows me on social media knows I am obsessed with lists. And I designed a to-do list um, under lockdown. And by the time this podcast comes out, I will have a version of it that I can um, give to anybody for free if they make a small donation to the FT's financial literacy charity, which we'll talk a bit more about later. But my financial to-do list, there are some things that have been on it for a while. And the one that I really need to get done this year, other than um, filing my um, tax return, which I still haven't bloody done, but, but it's only it's only September. <laughs> Got a few more few more months. Good reminder. Yes, well, I, I I always try, I try and get it done in July, and um, yeah, it was, it was a very busy July this year. The one thing that I really need to do is extend my lease because I live in the I live in a block of flats. I've got a leasehold property. I knew when I bought it. You know, this is something that I probably have to do if I stayed there for a while. And, you know, the, the clock is, is is ticking down. So it's something that I need to tackle. Now, the government have said quite helpfully that they are going to reform um, leasehold, which is a good thing. Technically, I could take a gamble and say, well, all of this stuff um, to do with marriage value, which is like if your lease drops below a level of about 82 years and it costs you significantly more to um, increases. They're going to do away with that at some point. So I'm left in this situation where I think, okay, well, do I pay, you know, maybe £20,000 to extend my lease now and then it's done and it will 
obviously enhance the, the value of my flat if I choose to sell it in the future? Or do I gamble that they will actually change this law and then it will kind of like matter less um, in the future? But there's no timetable. There's no timetable for any of these changes. They haven't got that much long left um, in this parliament. And writing about um, the torturous ins and outs of the leasehold system has taught me that it is so complicated. It is so complicated. If they're going to make any changes whatsoever without creating, you know, negative unintended consequences for the millions of people who own a leasehold property, they're, they're going to have to, to really think about this. So, so, yeah, so I am going to have to do that. But I found a surveyor. He's very nice. He's called Graham. Hello, Graham, if you're listening. He listens to me on LBC most nights. And I have found um, a solicitor um, and I have been saving up the money under lockdown to do that. I may put it on my mortgage because I've nearly paid my mortgage off. I'm in a very, very fortunate position that I bought the flat that I live in more than 15 years ago. So that is a, another decision that I'll have to take at some point because interest rates are just so low. They're just so low. And we made a podcast of, about this called Should I Borrow to Invest? Because some people are saying, well, you know, I could remortgage my flat because I've got so much equity and I could put that money in the stock market. I could fully fund my pension for the year. You know, what could possibly go wrong? But I think a lot of people who who are on the property ladder and you have done well, you know, will be thinking, hmm, should I, should I take this kind of a gamble? I am not the kind of person who would ever take that kind of a gamble. But nevertheless, you've always got different ways of doing things, different choices to weigh up. So, yeah, some conversations ahead with with the husband about what we should do, by which I mean, I say to him, this is what I think we should do. And he says, yeah, we'll do that then, <laughs> <laughs> which is what normally happens. But I do try. I do try and involve him and get his input into, into our decisions. But then I suppose if you were married to the personal finance person at the FT, you might just say, yeah, whatever. <laughs> And uh, talking about your husband, actually, <laughs> you've told me before, and I don't think it's a secret, that you're the main breadwinner in your yeah. in your family. And, you know, a lot more women are the main, becoming the main breadwinner. But there's still, I mean, according to, to a few pieces of research, this like stereotype that, you know, female breadwinners are very career-oriented, empowered, high-earning women. But it's not always the case. Can you share your feelings about that and maybe your personal experiences? Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I married Doug is because from the get-go, he was totally cool about the fact that I earned more money than he did. And it was just it was just a fact. You know, it's like, I've got hazel eyes, he's got blue eyes. It's just a fact. Whereas before I met him, I had had at least two other relationships where me earning more than the man had been a factor in um, in, in in the breakup because they one in particular sadly just felt very demasculated by by the whole experience and I mean that was probably because those relationships were in my you know kind of mid twenties at an age where those things tend to to matter a bit more but it is something that I think a lot of men and women need to have honest conversations about now another thing that might surprise you is that a lot of women who I speak to in the course of my job you know I'll say to them you know how much does your husband earn or whatever and they say I don't know I don't know I've never asked him well you know ballpark you know well, I, you know he, he makes all of the financial decisions you know I mean he sorts out the mortgage you know the car payments or you know whatever and you know and it could be the other way around you know you could have a higher earning woman and her husband doesn't doesn't know what she's earning but you know I've always been a hundred percent open about my finances with my partner I do think that you have to be financially compatible with somebody if you are going to have a successful marriage and you know I do say to him things like he's at home at the moment and I said to him oh um a parcel's gonna arrive for me later because I bought a pair of shoes but they were in a sale <laughs> and he's just like look what you spend your money on is up to you if you want to buy an Emmerbridge Bridge Morton or a pair of leopard print shoes in this case I thought oh that'll be nice <laughs> I haven't bought a pair of shoes for a long time um and they happen to have size eight because I've got massive feet I'm like my feet are size eight and a half but I squeeze into an eight whenever you see a pair of shoes and they actually have like one pair left that are your size I, I tend to I tend to strike <laughs> um, for and, and buy them. But, you know, but we share the we share the financial decisions, you know, and I tell him, you know, this is what I've got our money invested in. This is what I'm doing. And I think a lot of it, he probably 
thinks like, yeah, yeah, you know, like, why are you telling me this? But it's really important to me that he does know. And it's very important to me that he and the children, so I've got three stepchildren, know where our paperwork is. So they know where to find mum and dad's will, for example. They know that there's an asset register. I mean, you know, we're not multi-millionaires or anything, but it's just like it's helpful for people to know, you know, we've got this much in this account and we've got this much in NSNI premium bonds and this is where my stocks and shares ISA is and this is where my lifetime ISA is because this is all good admin practices but also saving you know so much time and faff and and hassle you know were the worst to happen you know I had a pretty nasty bike accident it could have been a lot worse about two months ago I came off my bike. I was very lucky that I didn't lose any teeth, which could have been expensive. And it really shook me up. And, you know, you kind of go through life thinking, oh, you know, I'm not going to die. And, you know, it's all it's all going to be fine. And then something like that happens. And you think, gosh, you know, actually, it could all easily, you know, be over in a heartbeat. So I, I would really encourage people, though it seems quite morbid, you know, think about things like wills and think about things like do your children, if they're old enough, you know, do they know what to do? Um, does your partner know where where everything is? You know, like, do you have a way where you can share passwords online? There's lots of new digital services that um, are, are doing that kind of thing. And you know, with COVID, a lot of people have been have, have been thinking about this. You know, there's been a massive surge in will writing under lockdown, and the digital will providers are really forging ahead and taking a bigger market share because they're making it so much easier to to get something done especially if there's like a big income gap, one of you earns more than the other, whichever way around that might be, and you've got children, one thing you absolutely need to tick off your financial to-do list is life insurance. Because if the worst does happen, and I'm not saying it will, to lose your partner is going to be an absolutely crushing blow, but to lose their financial income, especially if they don't have any arrangements in place with their company, to provide like death and service benefits and things, that's going to come as an even bigger blow. You know, having to sell the family home, you know, moving into the rental market. You know, these are all things that I've heard from financial advisors. You know, have 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 happened. You know, to to people in real life for the sake of you know twenty, thirty, forty pounds a month. You know, going going into to an insurance policy. I'll share another thing with you a friend who I used to work with many years ago under lockdown very very sadly was taken into a care home because he um, incredibly at the age of about 46 had developed early onset Alzheimer's you know absolutely terrifying and that really shocked me into taking out critical illness insurance which is something I've been thinking about for a long time but just hadn't got round to and the younger you take this stuff out, the cheaper it gets. You know, I mean, my premium cost me 90, 91 pounds a month. I wrote about this. The reason why it's so high is because I'm a bit fat. Um, so I've been, I've been trying very hard. I have lost, um, I've lost about a stone and a half uh, under the last lockdown, which was, which is pretty impressive. But you know, it's bloody hard to, to, to lose weight after you um, get past the age of forty. But nevertheless, you know, having that happen to my dear friend was just so awful. I thought, you know, this is something I can't put off any longer. And I am comforted that I have got that policy in place. And I think it's worth the money. But equally, I hope that I never have to, to draw on it. Well, <laughs> and okay, so now I just wanted to, to learn a bit more about your financial future. Like, mm. How do you save for the older Claire Barrett, you know, in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, how do you invest your money? How did you get started? And if you can, you know, give us uh, a few tips, that would be super. Sure. Well, the, I mean, my biggest financial mistake, I suppose, is that I didn't actually start saving into a pension until I was nearly 30 years old. I did, however, buy a flat at the age of 26. So all of my money before then, I was pumping into, you know, getting a place and then renovating it. I mean, I could have joined the company pension scheme on top of that as well. But I always thought in the back of my mind, well, I'm not going to stay here for very long. And I ended up staying at that particular company for seven years, you know, before I joined the FT, which is like a real, um, but it's not made clear to people that, you know, when you join the pension scheme, 
what happens when you when you leave the company? Well, your money's still invested in the pension. It just sits in that pension scheme. And if you're if you if you have skills, because uh, <laughs> you do need to be quite dogged and determined again, uh, you can get it out and either put it in a SIP, a self-invested personal pension, or uh, you know, in, in my case, when the FT was bought by Nikkei, I combined my old FT pension um, and my new FT pension just because I like to look at one big number and see where I am. But I think it's really interesting the rise of these pension consolidation online services like Pensions B and Wealthify, which are advertising on the tube. I really hope, Emily, that it ups the game of the frankly ludicrous um, company pension providers who, you know, when you want to get in touch with them, you've got to listen to half an hour of Vivaldi um, <laughs> before, again, you know, before you can get through to a human being. And I don't think they're user friendly. They are not offering green choices in the same way that the private pension providers are. And, you know, they're, they're just going to get all of the company's money anyway, because they've been chosen as the provider. So they don't really feel like you're the customer. They feel like, you know, your company is the customer. And providing customer service, dealing with people like us, even if they are doing it online, you know, we're just seen as a cost and an inconvenience. And that, that I really resent, um, because I would like to make more dynamic choices with my company pension. But you can't really move very fast with these things. So I accept that, you know, even though that is the the location for the vast majority of my future savings, just because of salary sacrifice, which I've written a column about this week, which makes it extremely tax advantageous for a higher rate taxpayer like me to, to save into a pension scheme, plus the company contributions. You know, I, I really feel that the, the tax relief in particular that higher rate taxpayers um, can currently get, this is not going to last forever. There are going to be further curves on this in future. So I pay as much as I can into my pension. That's priority number one. And then priority number two is the stocks and shares ISA. I was lucky enough. I qualified for the lifetime ISA by six days. I was 39 years old and like 358 um, days when they announced it at the budget. And there was this moment in the FT newsroom when I was covering the budget where I thought, hang on a minute, I'm going to be able to to open one of those. So so I did. And I make sure that I pay in the full £4,000 allowance to that every year, which means I get a £1,000 tax-free bonus from, from the government, which is good. I mean, politically, I think it's madness. I don't think that I should be getting this money. But, you know, if it's on the table, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take it. Thank you very much. And uh, I take the view that at the age of 44, I can't get that money out of the lifetime ISA until I'm 60. But it's only another 16 years. Now, for a younger person in their 20s, obviously, it's more... It's, it's, it's more of a gamble, but it's a risk I feel I can afford to take. Um, I'm comfortable locking money up for retirement, but I do have um, short-term savings. I have premium bonds, which is where I put all of my tax money because I know that I've got to pay it out eventually for the tax bills, so I sure as hell don't want to spend it. But equally, it'd be quite nice if I won the million pound prize <laughs> while I was waiting. I got a text the other day saying, you have won on the premium bonds. My first thought was, this is a scam. Um, and then I thought, no, I'll check on the NSNI app. And it said, yes, you have won a prize. And I was like, honestly, my heart was like hammering. And I was thinking like, oh, how much money? How much money? It was 50 quid. But even so, you know, 50 quid. Invested in the stock market for 20 years, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, so they do, they do, they're less generous than they were, but they, they do pay out. And it's quite a good system. I think lots of Lots of young people, young freelancers in particular, get really caught out by tax. Nobody tells you, you know, that this is coming. It's a lot of these things, you know, it's expected that you know that you should be putting either 20 or 40 percent of your income aside for these things. And there are all kinds of apps and, you know, electronic ways of accounting for things that can help people to budget and plan now that weren't around when I first started freelancing. But nevertheless, it's a life skill and you've got to stay on top of it. And don't forget to pay yourself into a personal private pension if you don't have a workplace pension. So you may see it as an additional cost, but really that's that's an investment. And how do you pick your investments in your stocks and share ISA and lifetime ISA? I find it really difficult because 
there is so much choice. And I think that this is shared by many people I know, both men and, and women. Obviously, you want to have a balance in your investments. You know, you don't want it to necessarily all be in equities. But I equally think, well, you know, I'm young enough to take a bit of risk. I look at all of my investments in the main. So I've got my company pension and I've got my ISA and my lifetime ISA. And so I am much more geared towards equities um, in, the, in the ISA, but also because you can make faster decisions. You know, you can trade in seconds. Um, you know, I mean, it takes a little bit longer with, with funds, but I particularly favour investment trusts. Um, you do have to pay stamp duty because you're buying um, a share, which is, uh, you know, a, a minor annoyance. But I do have a regular investment plan set up. So I've chosen my holdings to give me exposure to the trends that I think are going to be significant in, in the future. I'm having a bit of a head scratch at the moment about what to do with um, some of my investment trusts that have got exposure to Chinese tech companies um, who are obviously going through a rough ride. I haven't bailed yet, but this is the beauty of diversity, you know, because that's not all of my portfolio. You know, it's part of, um, you know, one investment trust in in particular that I'm saving into. But because it's in my regular investment plan, I'm buying more units in that investment trust at a lower price because of, because of the, the uncertainty with those Chinese funds, you know, and they may trade out of, um, of some of those holdings or reduce those those holdings or even buy more if they think that they're that they're cheaper. So I kind of trust the um the, the managers of the of the investment trust to to make those calls. You know, that's what that's what you're paying your your management fee for. But I do also have a large passive component. And in fact when I got the lifetime ISA started, because I only had six days to to do it, I just put the whole lot into a target retirement fund. Now, it happens to be one run by Vanguard, but there are ones run by um, other people. And it's very simple. You say, well, OK, what, what year is it going to be when, when I want to retire? And I think I picked the age of 65. So the target retirement fund, you know, it just ends in in, in that year. So I think it's like 2047. Um, I pick because yeah, because I love work. You know, I I think I'm so lucky. Yeah, see, working for me is is a joy, not a chore. I do like to take time off and and go bird watching every now and again. But it's a very easy way to just get money invested fast, put it all in a passive fund, which they then balance and rebalance for you as you get older. So it's one of those quick fire solutions. I didn't leave it in there for too long. You know, once the the money was in and I made sure that I'd made the deadline and that I collected the thousand pound bonus. Then I sort of thought about looking at the lifetime ISA and the um, actual ISA and thinking, how can I, how can I spread the um, investments um, across this? So I'm well diversified across continents, across geographies. A year ago when I um, was having a bit of a rejig, I took on more exposure to commodities in particular. That was a shrewd move. And the way I get the ideas for these things is like, it sounds like an advert, but, you know, I read the FT. You know, I see what's coming up. I don't just read the FT. I read a lot of other papers as well. I read the Daily Mail every day, which a lot of people are quite surprised by. But their personal finance coverage is absolutely tip top. And they are the mass market paper. And, you know, they never miss they never miss a story. Um, and it's important for me to know and absorb what all of the market is doing, not just the kind of wealthier FT reader. So yeah, so my advice to anyone who is looking for investment ideas is just to, you know, trust trust your instincts with a certain percentage of your portfolio, but you know, make good use of low cost um, passive funds. I think they're fantastic building blocks. And join, you know, a forum, whether it's Vestpod or whether it's um, you know an online, there's sorts of subreddits now in the UK for investors and you know, just talk to like-minded people, you know, talk, talk to your friends. Don't necessarily take investment tips often, but it's just like we, we are all having to learn. We're all in the same boat and the more opinions and the more investment decisions that you can hear explain to you how people have come to their conclusions, the easier it will become for you to come to your own. Thank you, Claire. I have three quick fire questions for you. Go on. What is the best financial decision you ever made? Other than marrying my husband. Uh, <laughs> my, my best financial decision 
was when I remortgaged my flat in 2008. I spoke to my boss, Simon Thompson, at the Investors Chronicle and said, I'm a bit nervous about remortgaging because I've never had to do it before. And also I was still on probation because I'd only just joined. And I said, like, you know, I know it's a bit cheeky because there's still three weeks to go. But do you think <laughs> so you, you seem to be pleased with my progress? So could you end my um, probation period? And he not only ended my probation period early, he also gave me some fantastic advice, which is he said, look, interest rates are just going to plummet and they're going to stay low once they get low. So go for a lifetime tracker. Um, and I said, OK. And I looked into the mortgage market and I thought, well, you know, if I've got to go through this bath and hassle every two or three years when a fix comes to the end, you know, getting the valuation, phoning around, you know, I just thought, I don't want to be bothered with all of that. And then every time you've got to pay a fee and, you know, the fee could be a thousand pounds in some cases. And you look at what that adds to cost of property ownership over like the life cycle of owning a home. So I thought, well, you know, you might get a few years if you do a fix where you're getting better than the market rate, but then you'll probably get a few years where you're paying over the odds. It's all swings and roundabouts. So I just think, you know, a lifetime tracker seems like a fair deal. And if what Simon says about interest rates dropping and staying low comes to pass, then that's great. Now, that decision, I it's been a few years since I've kind of went through the Excel spreadsheet and worked out exactly how much money he saved me. But I mean, it must be about sort of £40,000 by now, maybe even more. Um, and that because of the cost of the time involved in having to remortgage every two or three years. Um, and I do remind him of this every Christmas. We normally have a, a, a glass of wine together that we haven't done for, for a while, for obvious reasons. Um, but it, it was a fantastic move to make. And I think that for most people, obviously those with children are the exception, your mortgage is going to be your biggest fixed cost every month. So if you are looking to significantly improve your budget, start with the mortgage. You know, can you get a better deal? There are fantastic interest rates um, available on like three and five year fixes at the moment. You do have to have the confidence that you won't need to move or, you know, upgrade to a bigger property. You have another child. So there are some caveats, but if you can free up a couple of hundred pounds a month by switching provider, getting onto a better rate, you could invest that couple of hundred pounds a month saving. You know, you're, you're not used to spending it. This is the crucial thing. Don't let it lifestyle creep your way into just lying in your current account and, um, you know, being used to spend on shoes or whatever you might want to buy. You know, give it a purpose, put it into an investment, you know, or, or frankly, just increase your your mortgage payment and pay off the, the mortgage more quickly. And what is the worst financial decision you ever made? Well, we've covered not starting pension saving early enough, but I've actually just written um, a little piece for the FT about my coffee table. So when I bought my flat on my own, um, the boyfriend I was with at the time, I, I didn't want to buy this flat with him. I wanted to buy it on, it, on, on my own. It was a factor in our breakup. And when he left, he took the coffee table. So I thought, oh, you know, I have to go down Ikea, buy this coffee table. So I bought one, and I think from memory it was about £250. But when I got to the checkout, they said, oh, you know, if you get the store card, um, then you can get like, you know, 10% off or something. So I signed up for this card. Didn't really pay all that much attention um, to, uh, the to the repayments, but I was put on a, a minimum, uh, you know, monthly repayment, and the interest rate was probably about 20%. So for years, I had like, you know, again, it doesn't seem like very much money, you know, sort of like about £12 and it went down to £10 and £9 every month coming off this coffee table. And then after about two years, I thought, you know, why am I still paying for this bloody thing? Called up the online statements and found out to my horror that, you know, I probably added about £100 to the cost with all of the interest over the years and only ever making the, the minimum repayment. And, you know, that is a classic example of compound interest working against you. In my defence, you know, I, I was quite young. Um, I was sort of like 26, 27 years old when all of this was happening. I had a lot going on elsewhere in my life. And I have still got the coffee table <laughs> 18 years later and I don't think I'll ever get rid of it because I'm kind of like mm, I paid over the odds for this so you know I want to get my bloody money's worth and just to remind you of your good money habits no more store cards <laughs> yeah no I've never had a store card since they are 
an instant route to financial evil. And finally, what are the things you spend the most money on at the moment? This is a really interesting question because obviously lockdown meant I couldn't spend money on things like going to restaurants, which I really like. But it did mean that I spent a lot more money on groceries and making fancy food, trying to recreate the restaurant experience at the weekend. So I'm definitely spending less money on online groceries, but I am spending more money um, on eating out. But then it's a conscious choice because it's something that I really enjoy. It's not, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm very, very good. I, on the days that I do come into the FT office, nine times out of 10, I will make a packed lunch. I confess I didn't this morning because I was running late and a bit hungover, which is very kind of old me. But then, you know, we had this wonderful event here last night um, and I got a bit carried away because it was just such a novelty <laughs> to, to be out with, to be out with people and chatting and talking. So I would say that. And then the second one is I am a bit of a pottery addict and a bird watching freak. So bird watching, really good hobby. Um, as long as you've got a good pair of binoculars, everything is pretty much free. Um, however, <laughs> there is this British pottery company called Emma Bridgewater that sells different mugs with different birds on them. And they bring out about sort of two designs, maybe four designs a year. And they've been doing this since the sort of late 1980s. And I have managed to collect pretty much every single Emma Bridgewater mug in existence. And some of them are worth, you know, five, six hundred pounds just for one mug. Wow. I would never have paid that much. Um, the most I've ever paid to, to buy one is, is 300 um, pounds, which people might think, you know, that is an absolutely a stupid thing to have done but the one that I paid 300 pounds for is now the one that's worth about 500 600 pounds because there are some that are just really really rare because they made a few test runs and then they never put them into production so the way I justify that to myself is um, that they make they make a beautiful display in my house and I do use lots of the lower value ones as well but I kind of think of them as a as an alternative pension <laughs> the kids can sell them when I'm gone and hopefully make a decent return. Thank you, Claire. We didn't talk about the financial literacy charity you have at DFT, so maybe we can just finish off on, on this one because I feel that's an important one. Yes, terrible omission um, on my part. Yes, yeah, so the most exciting part of my job, other than the podcast, is being involved with Flick, which is the financial literacy and inclusion campaign, which my boss, Patrick Jenkins, the FT's deputy editor, had the idea of a year ago to set up. Now, I just thought, brilliant, you know, the FT is in such a good place to set up a charity to encourage financial literacy. I mean, at first in the UK, but eventually around the world, because, you know, we, we have a platform, we can work with large numbers of fantastic charities, which are in this space already, and really try to galvanise and link up the efforts and also share what works. You know, what's working in Asia? for example, where they score much more highly children um, in Asia on financial literacy than children in the UK. And how can we better embed this, not just within the education system in schools, but at universities, which is when young people first start to take on scary amounts of debt, but also in the workplace, because that's, let's face it, where we're going to do most of our, most of our retirement saving. So I do think that financial literacy is an inherently good cause. However, I also accept that it has its limits. And, you know, you look at one of the biggest financial problems in this country at the moment, frankly, is poverty. And you can't personal finance your way out of that. But there are so many people for whom having a little bit of extra knowledge, at a crucial time in their life to help them make um, an informed decision could really pay dividends in their future. And that is what we are really hoping that Flick will be able to do. And women are one of the key target groups that we want to be able to reach. So watch this space, look at my Instagram, I'm at Claire B or Twitter. There's lots on there um, about how you can get involved. And even if you can't donate your money, you know, donate your time, donate your support, get the message out there. Thank you. And we'd be really happy to support at Vespod, of course, with uh, 
with the community. Excellent. Claire, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. I hope I'm going to see you very soon. You can follow Claire on Twitter, Claire B on Instagram, the same thing at Claire B. Financial Times, of course, listen to the podcast. I will add all the links in the show notes. And Claire, thank you. See you soon. Oh, thank you for having me on. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to The Wallet today. Please share with a friend and subscribe or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, we have a new format coming out. So I need you to send me your proud money moments, your questions and comments via our hotline at emily at Speak to you next week.